On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Isabel, and Isabel was groomed by a covert mirroring narcissist. It's a story of CPTSD, intermittent reinforcement, restraining orders, and smear campaigns. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page. There's a button there that says Guest Form. Click on that button, fill out the Guest Form, and we will go from there. Another way to be on our show is to go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and be on our Letters to Our Narcissist to My Narcissist compilation episode. And for that, there's a floating button on the side of the page that says Send voicemail, click on that button, records up to five minutes, press it twice, 10 minutes, etc., etc. And we are accumulating these letters for a volume six of that episode. So if you want to uh, be on that episode, but don't want to read the letter yourself, send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com, put letters in the subject line, and me or my old pal Melissa will read the letter for you. And if you want to support our show, join our Patreon. Yes, we started a Patreon. If you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests, virtual support groups, and our own support forum board that is away from Facebook, come join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash NarcissistApocalypse. If you want to help support the show, come there, become a patron, get a lot of good extra stuff. And now, before we start the show, I just want to thank Isabel for being on the show, number one. And two, I just want to give a, uh, I guess, a warning. There's graphic language uh, throughout. Uh, so I just want to give that warning and swearing and all, all these other things. Uh, you know, some people might not like it. Some people won't mind. Uh, we didn't censor any of it this week. So uh, that is that. And now, without further ado, uh, everyone, here is my episode with Isabel. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Isabel. How are you? I'm doing well today. How are you? I am good. And we talked for a while, not just today, but we talked uh, a few days ago, I think it was, two or three days ago. So we're, you've done some preparation for this you know, you battle uh, CPTSD and a lot of people, when we do the show, the people who battle CPTSD, telling a story is not easy. We're dealing with non-linear, uh, you know, thinking in, in, a, in a lot of times. So there's uh, skipping back and forth. But, you know, you've been uh, a little bit nervous, but, I, you know, I know you're going to do great today. 
and I'm with you here every step of the way. And I just really want to thank you for being here, putting yourself out there. I know how nervous you are and how much you want to help people and which is what we're trying to do here. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here, Isabel. And now the floor is now yours. Thank you, Kat. I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, first of all, like, let me just say thank you so much for doing this show. For people like me that are survivors of this type of disease, especially, it's, it's really important. I think all of us are almost desperate for closure. It's, it's a pretty typical thing for people that go through this to not experience closure and you you know when you're in in any kind of relationship that ends or has problems it's normal to sit down and speak rationally like mature adults and be able to talk about what's going on and often we don't get that chance and we're often left really confused and just in desperate need of just being able to speak our truth so thank you so much for doing this for me and for other people and also just for doing this in general because it's so important that this information becomes part of, you know, just general knowledge. I think that we are in a time in in our culture that narcissism is prevailing <laughs> and it, it's so important that people understand what this is. So thank you so much for having me. Well, you're welcome. I'm happy you're here. And, you know, I'll take the kind words, I'll ingest them. And uh, <laughs> thank you, really, just thank you very much for saying that. And, um, you know, we're uh, in this together. So, uh, you know, let her rip. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on my history because not only did I date this person, you know, that was a narcissist, but I was actually raised in narcissistic abuse. And that's why I have complex PTSD that I struggle with. I was raised by a father that is now diagnosed. And now when I talk about like my ex and things like that, like I didn't know that he was a narcissist until like close to the end of the relationship. But I'll point out some things that I know now to be narcissistic behaviors. Now my father growing up, he was, I think what you might call a classic narcissist. And he ended up being formally diagnosed with NPD later on in my life. Um, and I don't want to get too much into the history, but um, I went through pretty sadistic abuse when I was growing up. And it, it really, it, it kind of like, there were probably times where I might have been the golden child in my family, but I was the truth teller. I was the empty more emotionally intelligent person and I saw what was happening in my family and I couldn't just not do something not say something and when I started speaking up about what was going on in our family I became targeted by my father and he really did cut out to destroy my life I mean he did I became a scapegoat in that dynamic and it, it really it really set the stage for things that happened later in my life. And so I ran away when I was about 16 years old, um, eventually came back only to move into a dorm and start college. And 
put myself through, put myself through college. And I had very little contact with my family after that. But every now and then I would, I would check in hoping that things would be different. My dad, he always used to like use this term turning over another leaf. So that was part of his hoovering technique. Oh, I've turned over another leaf. I've turned over a new leaf. I'm, you know, things are going to be different. Um, and I would go back and then they, of course they weren't. Uh, so I would walk away again, but each time was, was, you know, re-traumatizing to me. And I didn't really know what, uh, was going on with me emotionally. I mean, obviously I knew I'd been through horrible childhood, but I didn't know that I had CPTSD. And I, you know, I eventually, I put myself through school and got my degree and I moved to where I live now, which is it's a mid-sized college town in, in the South, in, in um, the United States. <clears throat> and um, eventually I did get diagnosed, and it, it helped me kind of understand what what had been going on inside me, all my uh, inability to, just, like, to uh, regulate my emotions, um, just my arrested development in certain areas and and things like that. It kind of put things into a box. Like, okay, like I understand what's going on with me now, and I can I can work with these triggers, and I can work with this. And I really I started working on my healing. However, because of what I had been through as a child, and just going out going out into the world without really having any kind of preparation for living in that in the world. I didn't really know how to connect with people very well, and I got bullied a lot. And it was really just for being just emotional. Like, I was never an angry person or a violent person. I was an emotional person and didn't really know how to regulate them, those emotions very well. But I, I ended up becoming more reclusive because of it and did start working on healing, but I focused my, mainly on just getting my degree, getting my career started, which I did so successfully. And really fell into a pattern of just staying at home and just doing my job. And when you have when you have complex PTSD, if you've gone through like long term abuse cycles that really affect you in this way and cause you to have these these traits or borderline traits or you know um, you know things that are activated by trauma, uh, it's really important to understand not to engage in self-defeating behaviors and to learn how to regulate your emotions, learn what your triggers are, learn how to have healthy coping skills and connect with people. And I was doing all of the above except for connecting with people. When I was, when I was reclusive, you know, and just focusing on my career um, and, you know, working on my healing and stuff, I did still like keep in contact with some of my old friends and this was one person that I, you know, one of like about three or four people that I had stayed in contact with, but just really just never went out and hung out with their friends, you know, just in a social scene or whatever. But I decided I was going to go meet up with her at a place in the town that I live in, the city that I live in. It, it's sort of like a place where a lot of the artists and musicians gather. So I went, so I went and met my friend at the place where everybody tends to gather and, um, he was there. My my now ex, I'm just going to refer to him as my ex, was there, and he was sitting at a picking table where my friend and her husband were, 
And I didn't really pay much attention to him, but it's funny. I met him the very first night that I decided to do this. Like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to meet people and it's going to be great. And, but I was more focused on my friend and her husband and just catching up and just kind of getting a feel for the space and, and just, you know, enjoying a night out with them. And the only interaction that I had with him was at one point he had heard me say that I had just, uh, you know, went to the temple and he's like, Oh, you're Jewish. And I said, yeah, you know? <laughs> and so I, you know, I didn't really take, I didn't really think about it. Um, and so that night went fine and everything was fine. Didn't really pay attention to him. And then about a week later, I met up with her and her husband again at the same place. And, you know, we had a kind of a night out and they invited a couple of their friends. And so I met some people and it was really nice and exciting. And then at one point, my friend's husband invited that same guy to the table. He had gone inside to get a drink and he came back out with this guy. And so we're all talking and having a good time. And then eventually everyone left and it was just me and him. And I ended up in this really, this really great conversation. He seemed to be on the edge of his seat, just wanting to just, soaking up everything I had to say. I'm like, wow, this person really likes me. And I'm, you know, really connecting with him. And I'm, I was asking him questions too, like, just, you know, where he's from. And he had been, he was, uh, um, he had just moved here to this city three years prior. He was from Atlanta. And then before that, North Carolina. And so we were just kind of getting some, you know, just basically get to know you stuff. And But he was really, really sweet and really meek and very gentlemanly and very kind and very charming. Just all of his ideas were very exciting. And just, I'm just, he just seemed to be so interested in me. And um, I just thought, wow, I'm, just, I'm making this new friend. I'm really connecting with somebody. And for me, that's kind of hard to do. So I, you know, I, like, I was just really happy. And then time goes on. He gets my number. He starts calling. He's very accessible. So he's calling a lot. He's texting a lot. We're getting to know each other. And it's really nice. And I'm also meeting other people at the same time. So I'm like, okay, I've got this. This is great. Now I'm doing this thing that I needed to do. Like, I wanted to connect people, and I'm doing it. And that's great. And so, I mean, he actually started doing the future faking, like, immediately. He just, he was, by the way, I was not into him. I was not into him. It, it was just, it's just a friend, just a friend. And I just thought, you know, this is a great person to know. And he, he was very intelligent and very witty and a good conversationalist and it's nice to talk to him and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he just started like really kind of intensely focusing on me immediately. And time goes on and it's about like the, because this is like November that I met him and then like into December we're hanging out and we're talking and he started saying like, Oh, I want to take you to this park that's outside of the city. And I want you to come with me here. And I want to go to Canada and I want you to come with me to Canada. And I'm really planning on doing this. I remember sitting with a friend of mine one day and he was there and uh, we're both very sensitive people, both very, we tend to be more empathic, you know, if you will, if you want to call it that. And uh, I remember him saying, 
like, oh, I want to go to Canada. I have all this money. I have all this, all this money. I have all this money burning a hole. It's like I have, I have like fifty thousand dollars burning a hole. And I don't tend to tell people how much money I have, but you know, he's very proud of saying, like, I have all this money and burning a hole in my pocket, and I want to do all this stuff. And like, I'm going to go to Canada, and I want to go to Atlanta, and I want to do this, or maybe I'm going to buy a house, or maybe I'm going to buy a scooter, or maybe I'm going to go to Thailand. I don't know. And he seemed almost anxious talking about it, like he wasn't really sure where he what he wanted to do. And he, even as he was like very meek and kind and gentlemanly and charming and everything, he was also like very socially anxious. And so I remember telling my friend later, like this guy seems kind of lost. I don't know. Like I, I feel like he's kind of lost. Maybe I can help him find some direction. And he had asked me to go to Canada with too and I even said well maybe you want to take somebody that you're dating you know like because I wasn't even interested in dating him at the time but uh he almost I remember the look on his face when I told him that he, he did seem like like how dare you say that you know like you know but I didn't you know it didn't really register why I was thinking like this person is lost and now when I look back on it it's almost like there was a part of me that was going no this person is a lost soul this person isn't lost this is a lost soul but, um, yeah, so it's about the, like, end of December now, and we're hanging out. And at this point, like, he he started engaging and mirroring me, like, this mirroring behavior that I didn't notice until now when I look back on it. Um, all of my body language, all of my phrases, everything, the way that I acted and talked, he was acting the same way. And it was, to me, I just thought, oh, I'm meeting somebody that's just like me. Like, he just, he likes the same things I like. He likes the same music I like. He acts like me. This is, like, I'm meeting my best friend. And I didn't realize he was mirroring me. But around, it was at, it was December 24th, actually. Uh, we were we were all hanging out. And my friend and her husband said, asked us if, well, asked me, actually, if, we, if I wanted to come back to their house and, and hang out there. And I said, yeah. And I said, oh, can, you know, my, my now ex come? And they said, yeah. So we all went back to their house and we spent time together. And it was really fun. And he's, you know, so just really this awesome guy. And <laughs> at the end of the night, um, we all, you know, they went to bed and we're downstairs and, I was like, hey, why don't you sleep on that boot on there, and I'll sleep on the sofa here. And let me just say, you know, this is December 24th. I have CPTSD. I don't have really a family of origin that I've, I've barely been in contact with them anyway. Like, I barely know them. You know, I've spent every holiday alone and have been a recluse for 10 years. So this was very exciting for me. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm spending the night at a friend's house on a big holiday that I would normally be alone. On, and so I was really happy. And it kind of dawned on me at that point that maybe this guy is into me because he's, he's really, like, interested in talking to me and hanging out. He's always in contact with me, and he's here now, and he's spending the night on Christmas Eve when he could be with his family, you know. So um, <laughs> I'm, it's in my head. And the next day I talked to my friend. I stopped back by to, to drop off some gifts for her and her husband and just kind of casually asked her like what she thought of him. And then she had actually maybe a couple of weeks before that we had been at a table with several people 
and she was sitting beside me and he was up on the other end of the table. And I remember her telling me like, you know, Isabel, you should really like get back out there. You haven't dated in five years. You should beat somebody. You should get into a relationship. And I remember him like looking at me and smiling, you know, and so I think it was like, he was sort of like kind of getting in my head. Like, I think, I think this guy likes me. I think I like him. I don't know. And like, so I asked her, you know, what she thought of him and, and she was like, oh, I don't really know, but he seems really nice. He seems good. Yeah, great. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hey, I'm thinking about it. And so um, I did. I ended up doing Christmas with uh, my my birth mother. Um, and uh, and that was the first time that we'd spent time together. You know, he's, my father's now in hospice, so he's not around. So we can spend time together now. And so we did kind of a Christmas dinner. A friend of mine came over during that. And then afterwards, uh, he texted me and asked me if he, if I would mind coming out and meeting him at this place where there's these two, two places where people like artists and musicians tend to gather in my town. And one is like a karaoke spot. And he was like, do you want to come down and hang out, you know, at this karaoke spot? And I said, okay. And so I go down there and we had a great night. Like it was just so great. Like we had, you know, good conversation. We're taking selfies and people are singing and it's just like, wow, it's Christmas and I'm out with people and I had family and blah, blah, blah. And so at the end of the night, he decided he wanted to come back with me to my mom's house. My mom said, okay. And so we ended up staying up all night and talking and had a good time. And um, uh, at the end of the night, I remember we made a pallet on the floor in my mom's living room and the Christmas tree was still up, and we put on REM automatic for the people. <laughs> As we both, we were talking about our both, both of our love for REM, and uh, um, we we fell asleep listening to that underneath the Christmas tree, and it felt so magical. It felt so intense, and I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. I just, I just went, I went to bed, and I, uh, put, uh, you know, I laid on my side with my back him and I was getting ready to go to sleep nothing you know and next thing I know he put his arms around me and my heart started beating so fast and I remember him leaning in and whispering in my ear your heart's beating really fast and and I just said oh you know I'm not I'm not used to this (laughs) and that was the last thing I said I fell asleep and I woke up and I was like okay I think this guy likes me and I like him and but at that point, I'd already been kind of taking my friend's advice and going on dates. So I'd had this date set up, and it was, um, I think it was December 27th. Me and this guy were supposed to meet up and hang out. And so... So at this point, you are, you know, just figuring out uh, what love might be or just relationships as a whole you're dipping your toes in very 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 carefully and this guy seems you know uh, there's no red flags at all with this guy at this point and everything's going slowly there's nothing uh you know it seems gentlemanly at this point you know it's going at a pace where you're getting comfortable with him so you have really zero um, you know, zero cause to think anything else is going on. You have this night at your uh, mom's place where you're listening to REM, where I assume by, I think it's like night swimming, where you are just like in heaven. 
I, you know, it's a great, that's a great song on the album. And that's, I think, right towards the end as well. So like whatever is kind of going on through it, you know, it's emotional. And so at that point, you know, you're really at a point where you friend zone is over and you know, you're ready for the next step. And it's done in such a way where you have no reason to think anything else. Yes, you're absolutely right. He was absolutely everything that I said before, just very meek, very kind, very charming, very witty and very good conversationally. And for me being an introvert and having been isolating myself for so long, having somebody that can just take the front seat and in a conversation Ooh, that's so calming. I don't know if any introverts are out there listening to that, but you, they, they would know what I mean. Like, oh, okay, well, I don't feel like I have to take the front seat, and I can just, when I want to chime in, I can. And, like, they're just, they, they're just so good at conversation. Like, that just makes me feel so comfortable, you know. And just, he's just so kind. Just very accessible. That's why I really want to, I really want to drive that home, because later it was the opposite. Because he really... I don't know where he went, <laughs> but it was, yeah, he's always around, always wanted to talk, you know, always, you know, talking about wanting to do all these exciting things with me. Really, really sweet. And I mean, the mirroring was, was, when I look back on it, it's kind of shocking because, I mean, literally the way that I would kind of hunch my shoulders over, he would do the same thing. The way that the way that I would smile and every and shake my head or whatever, he said the exact same body language. I thought it was him that changed. Like it just was gone later. But yeah, up until that point, no red flag. And I was taking it slow because that's that's something, you know, I hadn't dated in five years. And I'm 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 a monogamous person. So I hadn't had when I said I'm not used to this, I meant it. I hadn't been even that night before when I spent the night with him. And we were, you know, in downstairs in my friend's house. That's the first time I'd been alone in a room with a guy, you know, in in five years. It was my 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 past relationship. I dated the the guy I'd been with for seven years. So, you know, and then when we broke up, I kind of focused on, and we were both very kind of preclusive people by nature at that point. So, like when he when we broke up, it was like, okay, well now it's just me and my career. Like, it's like, I'm just going to focus on that. So it was really new to me. And I really wanted to take it slow because I know my own emotional boundaries. I know where I come from. I know what I'm dealing with. And so I, you know, for me, it's like, yep, just dipping my, like you said, dipping my toes into the water. We woke up, you know, the next day and my mom, you know, I remember my mom pulling me aside and saying, you know, you need this. This is good. <laughs> this is good that you met a guy. I'm so happy for you. And he, I think both of our cars were there, and he asked me if if he could take me home. So I left my car, and I, I'm yeah, I had to work. I had to work that morning. So he took me back home so that I could work. I work from home. And later in the day, he texted and said, you know, do you want me to come and get you so you can get your car? And, um, I said, yeah, you know, I don't want to bother you. That's fine. I can call my mom or whatever. And he was like, no, let me, let me help you get your car. So, uh, he came and picked me up and took me and got my car and everything. Just so sweet. Just, just so kind. 
so yeah, everything was just really, there were no red, there were none. It was amazing how kind and amazing he was. Just, just like I met my best friend. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, I had, I started dating. That's where, um, I think I was before you had asked me that the question about, you know, how there, were there any red flags or anything? I started dating on the advice of my friend, um, and I had lined up a date, and it was, it was December 27, and we were supposed to meet. And so <laughs> so we met up, and we're on a date that was, I mean, fine. You know, <laughs> there was really no chemistry, but he was a nice guy. And I just, like, like you mentioned, I'm just dipping my foot into the water. I'm just getting to know people. So, you know, it was fine. But then my ex showed up. And he went and he sat at a table outside where he was in my eye line where I was sitting with this guy. And I could not get my mind off of him. And I thought, okay, it's not fair for me to be on a date with this guy while all I could think about is this other guy. And even at, at one point, he went and got me a drink and I left the table like I was going to the bathroom. And went outside and just gave him a quick peck on the cheek and said hello and smiled like I smile, like so sweet. And, and I went back to the table. We had our date. Everything was fine, whatever. We stayed friends even afterwards. And um, the next day he texted and asked what I was doing. And I said, you know, I was like, I don't have any plans. And he said, well, I'm feeling kind of introverted. Do you, you maybe want to hang out at, you know, at your house or something. And I said, sure, you know, why don't you come over and at this time and we'll listen to some music and we'll talk, we'll have some wine or whatever. So he comes over and so I'm thinking, okay, I like this guy. He likes me. I can tell. And I'm going to tell him how I feel. So we're talking, we're talking and we're sitting on my sofa and drinking wine and listening to music and, I I was like, look, I feel like I have to tell you. Well, I was on this date last night, and you were there. All I could think about was kissing you. And he smiled and kind of just, like, shake of his head and leaned him like he was about to kiss me. And I was like, no, no, wait. Like, I don't mean it like that. Just, I like you, you know. Like, I, I wanted to be, like, organic, though. And he was like, oh, okay, you know. So, so we kept talking, and we had a great conversation. And I remember this one moment where – we were out on my back deck and spread his arms out. And he was like, life is my buffet. I can take whatever I want. And I just thought, wow, this guy's so exciting. Like, it's just, he's just, he's just, you know, he's just own man, you know, whatever. And we kept talking. And I remember um, Postal Service Give Up album was playing and Clark Gable was on. And we're standing in my atrium, and I was like, I just want to try something. And I leaned in and kissed him. And it was like, bam, like this lightning inside me. I almost, I thought I was going to faint. Like, I couldn't believe I was kissing this guy that I really liked. And it was so intense. I was like, wow, I'm really into him. And we only, we only, like, made out that night. It was no big deal. And I didn't make, you know, I didn't, we didn't have any kind of conversation about what was happening or anything like that. I just figured I'm making out with guys, no big deal. Um, and we even said, like, like, I did actually, we did have a small conversation, like, oh, this is just, we're just making out. It's not a, whatever. 
we, you know, it was no, there were no plans for a relationship or anything like that. And, but it was really, really exciting. And then like a couple of days later, he asked to come over again and we were talking and he was like, you know, I actually kind of like, like you. And I said, you know, I kind of like, like you too. And so we decided to kind of make a go of it. And then on New Year's, he asked to come over and spend time with me. And he was just like, oh, you know, let's not go out because, you know, New Year's is for amateurs. Let's stay at home and and drink and, and, you know, and enjoy New Year's just you and I. And, again, this is a holiday that I'm usually alone on. So I'm just like, yes, let's do that. You know, like, and I like this guy. And now we're into each other and we're talking about making a go of it. So let's do it. And, and he, I mean, I remember even him, like I was going from my um, little, little uh, caveat here. I actually live, so I, I, I call my, my, my family of origin my mom, my birth mother, because I have sort of an adopted mom and dad, and I live in their house. They have an extra house that they don't live in, and they let me live here. And so I spend... Anytime I do go do any kind of holiday for like an hour to I go and, and spend some time with them, I don't feel like hugely connected to them um, as family per se, but like they're like, they, they do take care of me. They do like, they're amazing people, you know, and it does feel kind of so lonely when I'm there, but like, they're just great people. Um, so I, I, gone over there to exchange some presents from Christmas or whatever and I was on the way home and he texted me and and said be careful because I heard traffic was really bad and he's just he was just so kind and so like he gets over there and I remember we're we're talking and things kind of turned more amorous and I said look here's the thing I really like you but I don't get super intimate with a guy like sex you know, unless I'm monogamous because I have a been a issues because I don't really know my mom and dad. I spent my childhood hearing things like you're not really a part of this family. No one is ever going to love you and experiencing a lot of abandonment and rejection, you know, due to the fact that my father was what he was. <laughs> and so like, if we're going to, you know, do this, like I, I only want to set him if I'm with somebody like really, you know, together. And he, you know, thought about it and he's like, you know, I really want to be with you. So we did it. You know, we, we decided like, we're going to be together. And we had a like amazing, magical night. It was very just incredible. And looking back on it, it's like, well, this happened, you know, even though I tried to take it slow, like, even though I tried to dip my, my toes in slowly and I did have from November 2nd to January 1st, like really courting this person and getting to know them. Once it turned, once once we realized we like each other or whatever, it happened so fast and it was so intense. And those are things that now I would want to look back on and go, hey, this is a red flag. This is a red flag. But I didn't think about it. And I remember the next day, uh, my friend my that I originally met him through, texted and said what's going on with you and that guy and I showed him the text and I was like well I guess I should tell her that we're together right and he's like yeah I tell her so I told him I told her that we were together and 
it was, I mean, I was really, I was really excited. I remember like maybe even like a week into the relationship, that friend and I were on a road trip and she was like, you know, I haven't seen you in a relationship where you're like in the beginning, you're, you're, you're super intensely excited about it. Like, it seems almost like too good to be true. It seems too intense. It seems too exciting. I was just like, I really like him, you know, like, and I, looking back on that now, it's like, wow, she was really trying to impress upon me. Like this is going too fast. This is something's not right here. But again, up until that point, there was really no reason for me to think any, I mean, I thought I'd met my best friend and he really was doing all this mirroring and all this love bombing. Like he was, giving me gifts. He was sending me texts all the time. He was doing, he was doing a lot of future faking. Like I want to do this with you. And I want to do that with you. Like I want to take you to Canada and I want to take you to like all these concerts and I want to, you know, travel with you and get, go to all these parks and like do all this exciting bike rides and all this stuff. And it was just really exciting for me. And I didn't think anything about it, but less than a week after we actually got together or maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit more than a week. All of a sudden, like, I remember, I remember we had this date where we were going to meet up at, um, that place that we originally met at. And I'm, I'm leaving out the name for a reason, but so we were going to meet up there and we're supposed to meet up at a certain time. And I'm there waiting for him and 10 minutes had gone by and he hadn't shown up. And then I look over it's the big window in the front and I see his Volvo drive by and keep going. And I was like, what? why, why did he just go in the opposite direction? That's not where you're parking at. Like that can't be where you're parking at. And another 10 minutes went by and he didn't show up. And I was like, well, what's going on? So I left and I went to this other place and I saw his car there or the other, the other you know karaoke place where we hang out. And he, he actually was just getting out of his car and I pulled up beside him and I was like, I had this like terrified look on my face. Like, what are you doing? And I felt inside my heart started beating really fast. And I just like, I was like, okay, something's wrong. Like what, what happened? And I, I said, please don't do this to me. Please don't do this to me. And he's like, do what? And I was like, well, I mean, weren't we supposed to meet 20 minutes ago at this other place? He's like, no, it's, it's okay. I'm sorry. And then we get back in his car and we go back there and then the night was fine. That was a red flag. <laughs> that was a red flag that I really should have paid attention to. And then I think it was like less than a week after that, he started talking about how bad, like, he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to disappear. And I was like, what do you mean you're going to disappear? And he was like, well, I think it's about time for me to disappear. And, I'm, and there was one point where we were standing at that, you know, we were, we're hanging out with our friends in a group and he said that and everybody kind of looked at me like what, what why would he say that like what's going on here and I thought you know well maybe he's having a bad day or something and, and uh he was like oh I got it he's fine don't worry about it but then around the same time he started saying that he you know if I want to disappear I want to go to Thailand and fuck lady boys and get syphilis and die and that was a comment that came out of nowhere one day that I was like, what? Like, what? Like, you know, like, 
what? <laughs> First of all, language, like, I would never use that term. That's his words, not mine. But what, I want to go to Thailand and fuck ladyboys and get syphilis and die. Like, what, what the hell is this? This is so different than the person that I've been getting to know. And then around the same time, I mean, I didn't even know how to respond to that because it's just like, what do you say to that? And and we had we had conversations early on in the relationship when he had said that he was bi, and I'm pansexual, but I've I'm only ever really really been in love with men. So like you know I'm not you know sexuality is whatever to me, but when you start talking about getting syphilis and dying, you know, on purpose, this is like a whole other level that I don't even know how to comprehend, I, you know, why, I don't even know what that has to do with sexuality anyway, but it was strange, and I, like, around the same time, he did start disappearing, like, all of a sudden, boom, ghosted, nothing, for, like, five days, I didn't hear anything from him, and I would text him here and there, and got a little worried, like, in my, like, in my, Complex PTSD was pretty much under control at this point. I had spent years healing and working hard on making getting that under control. So I was at a place, except for the fact that I hadn't really been connecting with people, where I was pretty okay, despite the fact that you know I lost his job and my father was toxic, which did make me a little bit extra vulnerable. But I was okay. I was okay. So but I was just a little. I was just worried. I was like, "What is going on?" So in my so here we have a situation. Where you are hooked already. And I, I say that in the sense of, you know, everything that was leading up to this relationship, you taking it slow, him saying all the right things, the mirroring, the future faking, you're pretty much hooked, you know, you know, because you're, you've decided. And lots of love bombing. And, and love, bombing. love bombing. And you've decided lots to. To, to take like that step and you're thinking you've really taken that step. So now you have this first, uh, not just red flag. Um, you have this first situation here where he is now acting completely different from the person you knew, uh, from the start. And, you know, here's a situation where some people might be like, leave, but here you're hooked, you know, and you are just kind of worried about him and wondering what's going on in this situation and not really thinking, you're thinking, okay, maybe he has a mental issue, a mental health problem at this point. You have no idea how deep this will run. Uh, but right now you're kind of being treated in a way where he's testing a boundary on you to see, you know, what you're going to stick around for and what you will uh, deal with and how you will deal with it. And in a, in a way, I'm, I'm kind of guessing here, um, but in a way, you know, you're going to be watched as far as, you know, this work, this work, this work, and I, this is what I can kind of get away with um, going forward. Oh, absolutely. Every boundary of mine got pushed. And as I look back on it, and this was the beginning of it, as I look back on it, I remember, you know, when I told him, hey, I don't have sex unless I'm in a monogamous relationship. I gave him everything. I, I mean, we had a lot of induced conversations that I, I really did not understand what induced conversation was from a narcissist at that point. Can you explain and that? Then, well, they just sort of like, 
there's just a lot of like conversations that narcissists have where they're just it's they, they they're faking it. It's just faking it. Like they bring it back to them or they say these little asides to you, like, you know, you're the smartest person in the room. Like like she would say, you know, you look like a French person. You look so classy. You look like the classy you're the classiest person here. You're the most beautiful person here. You're my Jewish princess. He used to say that all the time. My Jewish princess. Um you're so smart. You're smarter than everybody else. Like these little things. And it, it was like, he was gathering intel on me. I was, I was opening up to him so much. I was telling him everything he needed to know to hurt me later. He was, he was asking a lot of pointed questions. That's part of, all of that's part of induced conversations. He just, he was asking all these points, like just, you know, like what can he find out about me? And man, he didn't really have to try hard. I, I mean, because I'm an open book, I'm so transparent. Like I was just like, listen, I have these abandonment issues, so I don't have sex with anybody unless I'm monogamous. I just laid my cards on the table, and he knew exactly how to hurt me. He knew exactly how to hurt me. So, so when he does this disappearing act, uh, how do you act, and what happens uh, after this first one? So I. You know, I sent him a text here. I sent him a text there. I was, just, you know, I was still acting. I was still acting very healthy. I was like, what, you know, but I, but I, but it hurt. I'm not going to lie. It really hurt. And about five days went by. And finally, he gets in touch with me. He's very drunk. He comes over to my house. And he starts telling me, um, you know, the world's going to end, so nothing really matters. The world is going to end, and I I don't deserve good things. And I, you know, said, um, I don't sleep in my bed. I sleep on the floor beside my bed in a blanket that I have never washed because I don't deserve to sleep in a bed. And I'm just like, what's going on? Like, this, this person had been so kind, so charming. So normal seeming, so stable, didn't seem to have a drinking problem. And all of a sudden I'm getting, I want to go to Thailand and fuck ladyboys and get syphilis and die. And the world is ending. So nothing matters. And I don't serve good, good things. And so, yeah, we had a talk. <laughs> like, I was like, look, you know, but you're right. I was hooked. He, you know, he got me in, got me hooked just like they do. And as soon as he knew I was comfortable in the relationship, he just let that mask go. And it did start slowly and it does it the thing is they really groom you they really really groom you they push your boundaries slowly and and you almost just it just you kind of don't see how it's like the frog boiling in water you don't you don't you don't realize you're actually you know what I mean like it happens so slowly like you're put in that cold water it happens so slowly you don't realize you're in that boiling water it started really slow and it really did start with his problem. I'm Spyro. The world is ending. I don't deserve good things. And then he started saying that he doesn't really know how to connect with people. Now, before this, he'd been saying, you're the first girl I've ever really wanted to have a relationship with. You know, I, I've, I've just dated and had fun, but you're the first girl that I've really, really, you know, you really blow my mind. You're beautiful. You're a painting. You're a Jewish princess. You're so smart. You're this and that. I really, really like you. And and then all of a sudden, it's like, I don't know how to really connect with people. I don't really know how to get close to people. I keep people at arm's length, and I push people away, and I don't deserve good things. And so I'm like, okay, you have some self-destructive behavior. 
here. <laughs> like, what can I do? You know, so because now I'm in, I'm like, I want to help him. And so we had a talk that night. And, it, I, you know, looking back on it, it was like, he really gave me nothing. It was just me talking to him, like, you know, I want you to be okay. Like, I want you to understand that I'm here. I want you to understand that I care about you. And I want you to understand that, that I'm in this with you. And, I, you know, just don't disappear. Like, just let's work on it. Let's figure it out, you know. And it it, it, it just sort of went under the rug. Like, I just, let me just say, like, again, like, yes, he's a predator. Yes, I was his prey. But if I'm holding myself accountable here, I have to say, like, these are red flags that I should have paid attention to, and I didn't, and it's because of my own lack of self-worth. I deserve better than that, and, and, and I should know that. I should have walked away then, and I remember having a conversation with that original friend that introduced me to him, and she even told me, she's like, that guy just goes to you for five days, and you're going to take him back? You should have blocked him and walked away. And you mentioned that, too, and I, and I was just, you know, I just rationalize it like it, it it just I was like no I can make this work because I was already hooked I already had sex with him I was already his girlfriend I was like we I, I just and I was, I was so used to his normal behavior you know, what I thought was his normal behavior that you know this was new to me this is not normal to me so I just thought well who go back to being the other person that he was and this is gonna be fine so because, I mean, really, if you think about it, this person acted a certain way for several months, for a couple months, was really, really a lot like me and, like, everything I'd ever wanted in a guy. So when he started doing this, this is new. I didn't realize this is his real self. That was a mask. So I just kept thinking, oh, well, he's, he's going to go back to being the way he was. This is just some kind of whatever. It's, it'll be okay. So then um, he tells me one day, he's like, you know, um, I have this. I have a drinking problem. And I think he, he'd actually, like, the day that he had come over after he'd ghosted me and he was really drunk, he had said he wanted to drink himself to death, uh, among all that other stuff he said about going to Thailand and getting syphilis and the world is ending. Blah, blah, blah. So he wanted to drink himself to death. So kind of, like, I was like, okay, you have a drinking problem? Like, um, but the thing is, beyond that moment when I saw him drunk, I had never seen him really drunk before every other time that we hung out before that he was just a casual drinker just a couple of drinks and then go home so i'd never noticed a drinking problem just that one night and i just thought well he's having a bad night right so then he says oh i have to have you know i have a drinking problem he just starts kind of dropping these things on me and i was like okay and then and then maybe like oh, a week after saying that he's saying like you know i want to get sloshed and then a week after that, he's, he's drinking himself into oblivion. But it became like this normal thing for me to be on the phone with him. And he would have like a bottle of Evan Williams next to him and just take a shot, throw up, take a shot, throw up again, take another shot, throw up again. I mean, it was ridiculous. But it like it kind of started like by saying like, I have a drinking problem and that led to I want to get sloshed and then that led to that. So that started happening. And around the same time, also, he told me, he told me that he wanted to, he wanted me to meet his parents. And it was one morning we were in, we were in my bedroom. You know, he had met my mom already and everything. 
he's like, I want you to meet my parents. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I want to, I'll meet your parents. And, and, uh, he's like, yeah, you're going to love my dad, by the way. You're going to love him. He's the greatest guy. He's so sweet and so kind. I just wish I was good enough for him. <laughs> but my mom, she's a piece of work. She's a real cunt. Be careful about my mom. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, and he's like, oh, you'll see. <laughs> a little bit of foreshadowing there. So, uh, I ended up going and, and meeting his parents, and I felt a lot of tension in the room. He was right. His dad was really, really nice. His, mo- his mom seemed fine. I mean, normal, whatever. But I was really scared of her at that point because of that. I was like, ooh, what's going on here Like with his mom? But he wouldn't really tell me, you know. But at, at that point, I had met his parents, and I'd, like, learned, you know, kind of had this little bit of foreshadowing about about his mom. And then, so at this point, it's it's still about January. It's still January, and I'm all I'm getting all these red flags. I'm not watching them. I'm just thinking, okay, he's got some issues he's working on. And uh, he had said a long time ago, you know, well, not a long time ago, but when we first met, that you know he wanted to take me to Atlanta, and that was one of the, the things that actually did come to pass because. He had said it so many times that finally I was like, you know what? We should do this. We should go to Atlanta. We should go see a show in Atlanta. And I kept pressing on it. You know, he seemed kind of sullen when I was talking about it now when I think about it. But it, it ended up coming to pass. Like, and it almost didn't because the weekend that we were going to go, we had bought tickets and everything for the show. And the weekend, he had kind of been in this really bad mood. And I it didn't seem like it was going to happen. And then he kept procrastinating. And then finally I was like, well, are, you gonna, are we going to do this or what? And he kind of seemed to like not want to do it, but finally like rallied and said, okay, let's, let's go. And this was, and so by the way, this was also around the time when he had only just told me like, you know, I have a drink problem. He hadn't gotten to the point yet where he was like, I want to get flushed. So, so we decided to go to Atlanta. And this was the first time that, I really saw the narcissistic rage. And from what I understand, this is the first thing that you really see that is a giant, giant, giant red flag. We went to Atlanta, and we're getting ready to park at the hotel, and he missed the parking garage. And I remember pointing it out, like, oh, you know, there's where we go in the park. And I, I must have triggered his sense of inadequacy and insecurity and his shame for some reason or something did and he got so angry and he's driving around these one-way streets in Atlanta and he wasn't taking it out on me he was taking it out on strangers on the street everybody he saw he was like that person's fat that person's ugly that person's a garbage person these people are just why don't they just get out of my way they're all in my way like these people suck these people suck and it was just awful and I was like what is going on like what you know and so he you know finally we you know we get in and we go and that was that was that was the first time that I really saw that narcissistic rage I was just like okay this is weird and it was also around that time that he like we got back from Atlanta and everything we had a good trip I mean for the most part except for that one little thing but it was around that time also that he we come back from Atlanta and he's telling me, you know, I don't really like labels, so why don't we like why don't we just say we're together? We we shouldn't say boyfriend and girlfriend. Why don't we say we're together? And like that that was also this 
this weird manipulation that started happening or this weird, like, moving of goalposts and, like, confusion that started happening throughout the relationship. And at the end, he even said that we dated for two years straight. That is a flat-out lie. I, I really couldn't even tell you how long we dated because it went from we're together, we're boyfriend and girlfriend, to I don't like to use labels, and then telling people that we were together and then telling me that we had never been together and then telling, you know, just, I mean, I remember telling somebody, he had said to somebody that we were together and they asked me and I said, yeah. And then it got back to him and he broke up with me for that. I mean, just constantly like, where do I stand with this person? I don't, you know, he just keeps changing kind of the nature of our relationship. And it, it was just, it was kind of like, really weird this is this is actually like by by february is where the devaluation really started happening and that was the that was the first part of it was just starting to change the the nature of our relationship and i guess he was just pushing he was just pushing that boundary like how how far can i go with her about you know and like i started kind of like probing him about these issues and i was like look you know you really do seem to be self-destructive and you do at that point, he'd already been saying, I want to get squashed all the time, and he started to drink a lot. And I was like, you do seem to have a drinking problem, and you do seem to, you know, be self-destructive and feel like you don't deserve good things and all this. And, like, maybe, you know, you should try to address these. And he said, yeah, I really want to get help. Like, I, I think I should probably go to therapy. But he never did. And he, I mean, it just, it just sort of, like, all this like kind of intermittent reinforcement started happening at that point where you're like, like all of this had been, you know, it had been good in the beginning and now all this devaluation started, but then every now and then things would be good again. And I would think he's going back to being the person that he was and intermittent reinforcement. That's what creates that trauma bond in narcissistic abusive relationships where they kind of give you these little breadcrumbs. It's like they did these studies on rats, right? Where, you know, rat presses the lever, they get a reward. Rat presses the lever, they get a reward. Every time they press the lever, they get a reward, right? And so then they stop giving them the reward. The rat will press the lever, doesn't get a reward. A few times that happens and the rat goes, okay, I'm not getting a reward anymore. I'm going to walk away. Well, with intermittent reinforcement, you press the reward and sometimes, or you press the lever and sometimes you get a reward and sometimes you don't. So the rat kind of keeps thinking, well, some, if I keep pressing this lever, at some point, I'm going to get a reward. And that, that's what intermittent reinforcement is, is every now and then he'd be kind. Every now and then he'd give me a gift. Every now and then everything would seem normal. And it just it, that and the manipulation and these highs and lows and holding on to the hope that those lows will disappear, that's what creates that trauma bond. And it started then, started right about then. But the devaluation started happening more and more and more. And come March, he, he was just so sullen all the time. Like, he would go through these periods where he would disappear again. And, like, I was starting to just kind of get used to it because I was holding on to that hope, like, when he acts normal and thinking he's going to go back to being the person that I met. And in March, I remember we went on a bike ride. And um, at the end of the bike, this is kind of embarrassing, but, but at the end of the bike ride, it was kind of a hot day. We had a drink afterwards, and we went home, and we had sex. And then... I ended up getting a yeast infection. And sometimes that happens with new partners. You know, it just happens. But he, when he, when, when I told him, you know, I need a break from whatever because of this, he said, oh, yeah, 
my my dick is poison that I'm never going to touch you again. And I was like, okay, that's never a reaction, but um, I'm sure it's going to be okay. And then I ended up going out with my friend and her husband, and he was there. And as an aside, I was talking to her. I was like, you know, this happened, and I, um, I'm i not really used to this happening to me. Like, do I need to go get some medicine? Like, what do you do? Is there a home remedy? What You know, and we were kind of having an aside talking about it. And he heard us while he was over there on the other side of the table talking to her husband. And really loudly, he broke into our conversation and said, yeah, she's really ugly and gross, and I'm never going to touch her again. We're breaking up. And it was like, it was horrifying. I mean, he basically publicly humiliated me and broke up with me because of something I can't control. And it was just, it was just really hurtful. But then again, like he got back with me like the next day. So I just want to, I just want to just remember where you were there, but you know, it seems like his big thing is, um, you know, the impromptu uh, breakup right away. And does that feed into your abandonment issues? Absolutely. Yeah. It was slowly really breaking down my self-esteem. It was slowly really making me feel insecure in the relationship. At this point, I was still acting rather healthy in the relationship, but I was getting very insecure. And I remember even telling him, okay, you know, this is starting to make me really insecure. And he kept, you know, he was still focused on his issues. Like, oh, well, I'm going to get help. And like, I remember one time he looked at me and he, I mean, really just gave me the most pathetic look and was like, well, do you, do you think that I can really get well? And I was like, look, you're really smart. Just figure this out. I know you can get well. Absolutely. And I just, I really do feel like sometimes when I look back on the relationship that he has some self-education, that he knows what he is because there were certain things that he said that let me know, like, well, that state, that statement he does right there is a, is a fishing statement. He's fishing for the answer. Cause a lot of times, you know, when you talk to someone or someone who's like this, uh, get caught doing something, they might go, uh, into the whole spiel of, Oh, I'm a bad person. So it gets you on the other side saying, Oh, you're not a bad person. And all of a sudden things have shifted back into their favor. So his thing yeah, is, you want to help them. yeah. So his thing is doing that little spiel there because then all of a sudden you're like, no, 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 you can like, I'll help you get better because the, you know, that's you. That's he's going after the abandonment of you um, with that tactic. And then in that move right there, he's going after the one that uh, person who, is the pleaser or someone who be like, I can help this person get better. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like he is aware of that. And that's, that's what's really scary. He, I think he had an awareness that he could exploit that insecurity more than anything else. That abandonment, he knew he could exploit that. And that's what they do. They find your insecurities. They do that intel in the love bombing stage and they, they exploit those insecurities that they get through their intel. And he was really doing, he was starting to do a really good job of it. And at that point, he really actually started, the devaluing really amped up at that point. He would provoke fights for no reason. I mean, he would just become aloof and stop talking to me. Or like all of a sudden he would start throwing things around the room and you don't know where it came from. You just don't understand why all of a sudden there's all this hostility that wasn't there, that there's no reason for it to be there. Who knows where it comes from? You can't make it stop, and he would run. He would run off. He would just leave, and I couldn't talk to him. And 
you get to this place too where it's like, okay, when things are going well, you don't want to say anything because you don't want to rock the boat. But then when things go bad for no reason and you have no understanding of why it's happening, you want to talk about it. You're like, well, this, we need to talk about this issue. Why is it happening? And he doesn't let it happen. He shut me down every time. I never, never was able to understand what was happening. Never able to have that conversation. Never able to have any kind of rational communication about why these things were happening. And it's like me, I'm just, you know, I'm like, well, these things are happening. We should talk about it. You know, why is it happening? And it started to really break down my self-esteem because not only was he provoking fights, but he was also just nitpicking everything. And then all of a sudden, you're like, you're fat. You're ugly. You're stupid. Those were his favorite terms. And then he started saying, like, you're autistic, and people don't like you. They just tolerate you, and you're not good at being social. And, like, just everything that he knew was an insecurity in me. He started saying it was – then he would, but then he would come back and he would say, I'm sorry, you know, everything's going to be different and I'm going to get help. And he never did get help. That was just future faking, I guess. But he just, you know. So anyway, it's about March and his birthday is coming up. And I plan a party for him, a surprise party. And I, I, well, I'm planning it. I realized I haven't met any of his friends. And I mean, like, it, it was like, well, I mean, Maybe he's friends with my friends, maybe because like there were moments where we'd be hanging out with people and he seemed comfortable, like he'd been talking to them forever. But then I remember certain times saying, "Well, you you know so and so or whatever I'm dating, da da da." Well, I don't know him, but like, oh, you were hanging out with him the other day. Oh yeah, I remember him. So I'm trying to think. Well, maybe he doesn't know these people like I know them. Like so I remember some of them from ten years ago, before, you know, when I was hanging out a long time ago when I was younger, before I had kind of isolated myself or kind of got back in contact with them or whatever and then my friends that I met through my original friend that I met him through and everything so it was you know but I'm realizing all the people I'm inviting are people that I know and there really isn't anybody that knows him but he is hanging out with these people a lot lately so and then you know whatever he shows up and he barely spent any time with me he just didn't talk to me very much at all and he got really drunk that night I mean like passed out drunk I'd take him to my mom's house at the end of the next, he lives closer than I lived way on the other side of the town. So we went back to her house, and the next day she was like, hey, you've got a problem. This guy is not okay. Something's going on here. You should not be dating a guy that gets that drunk. I saw him get out of the car. I watched you have to carry him in the house. Something's wrong here. And I was just like, oh, my, come on. He's fine or whatever. It was his birthday, blah, blah, blah. Um, Stuff like that was happening. And then, like, right after his birthday, he came back over to my house, and we were talking, and he was still kind of recovering from the night before. And he said, you know, um, we're, we're hanging on my back deck. And he's like, you know, I want to tell you about my mom. And I was like, okay, what, you know, what do you want to say? Or, you know, what's going on with your mom? And he was like, look, you know, it seems like I had this really idyllic childhood, but my mom really demanded perfection from me. Nothing was ever good enough. She actually disowned my older brother because he didn't go to college. And she was really, really mean. She was never very nurturing, but she never said no to me. She, I mean, it seemed like I had an angelic childhood because I had all this stuff. Like I was given anything I ever wanted, but she never really like emotionally cared about me. And she always demanded perfection. And so I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, you know, that's probably where these issues that you talked about come from. 
all of a sudden, he just went into this incredible rage when I said that. How dare you intrude upon me? How dare you tell me that, that, you know, what my issues are and where they come from? And I'm like, whoa, you're the one that brought up your mom, and I'm supposed to be your girlfriend. Like, I think anyway, because he's changing our label that we are, whatever, but in breaking up with me and getting back together, but I think I'm a girlfriend. Like, you know, but you brought it up, and I'm just talking to you. I'm just trying to help you. And he's just like, oh, dude, you know, he just got so mad. And then he just went cold. And I still don't know what to say. Is, is he, was he, like, manipulating me? Was he really trying to get to the root of his problem? I really don't know. I really, like, I don't know why he brought that up to me. I feel like he was trying in that moment. But I just, I guess it just, he couldn't do it. I don't know. But you know what I know? What, what? I know that the person that you originally dated is nowhere to be seen anymore. Nowhere. He is completely gone. That guy does not exist. That person was a figment of his imagination come to life of what you wanted to see. And now the real guy is there and, uh, you know, it's, it's not good. But because of my abandonment issues, because of my lack of self-worth, I stayed. And I, you know, well, see, see you, you give yourself, you know, you, you blaming yourself and all these, but you, this guy presented himself in such a way at the beginning of this relationship, in such a way, I mean, he's not the same person, and you're hooked on him like drugs, and I know you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I know, you know, you're taking responsibility, but you were, you were duped here, and, you know, you should know that, and take it easy on yourself in that way. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I mean... You know, I do, I, I go, I vacillate, but I, I go back and forth with that. Like, I, I don't want to shame myself. I don't want to end up with somebody who's, you know, just uh, be, being somebody that's just like, just broken. But I also, I feel like being self-aware of the things that I could have done better is one thing that I, I know I can do to make sure that I continue towards him. And that's me trying to be strong. And you're right. You're right. Those things are right, but I feel like it's just a both and situation. You know, like it is true that I should, I should have walked away, and I was duped, though I was. But but nobody deserves to be treated the way I was being treated at that point. And if if I had if I loved myself more, I should have walked away then. But it's so hard. It's so hard, and I don't want to minimize anyone's experience by blaming myself for not walking. I'm just trying to take a little responsibility of what I could have done better because the thing is, it really is hard. It really is hard because of that, that intermittent reinforcement that I was talking about where you're like, you're waiting for them to go back to being that person that they were. I remember asking him way later in the relationship, like, why, why aren't you that person that I met? Where did that person go? And he said, I changed. (laughs) And you know what? No, he didn't change. <laughs> that was just a mess. This is his real self, like you said. But I was so confused. And I don't know why, because I was raised in this. Like, you know, it's like, why didn't I see this? It took me so long to see it. 
But I just, I was thinking, oh, he just has like avoidant attachment or something, you know, like because of his mom. I, I, I wasn't thinking full blown narcissist at that point. I just thought avoidant attachment. So, and I even told him, <laughs> he was like, oh, I want to get help with that. Blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I was too. And yeah, it is really hard to walk away, especially when they know how to exploit your insecurities. They know, they know how to get that intermittent reinforcement. They know how to create that trauma bond. Or at least they do it. I don't know if they know they do it, but they do it, right? So, so what, after that, yeah, so that what, sorry. Mm-hmm. So what happened next? So about four days went by, and I, I hear from him. He was really upset with me for saying that, and and then he agreed to meet up with me at that you know for a meeting place when we tended to meet up. And he and several of my friends were were in within earshot of this. He said, all of a sudden, he said, I want to fuck someone else, so I'm leading you. Because you're fat, and you're ugly, and you're autistic, and you're stupid, and you don't know how to be social. And just, I mean, just leveled all of these insults at me. And it was, it was horrifying. And my friend had actually, one of my friends had actually come and sat down at the table mid-verbal abuse. And was just, like, looking at me like, what the fuck do I do? And I was just like trying not to cry in public. And I was like, well, even we should leave. Like, we, this should not be happening here. Everybody knows each other here. Like, this is not a public thing. This should not happen here. Like, let's sleep. Let's go and talk about this or whatever. And he said, okay, well, I want to take you home. I need to take you home. So I'm like, all right, well, fine. We'll go. You take me home. We'll talk about this or whatever. So we get to his car and all of a sudden he's like, no, I'm not taking you home. You, can, you, can, you, you know what? Your friend needs to come and get you. And that friend, that original friend that he introduced me to actually lived like lived a block away from there. So it's like, I'm going to get her and, and she can come and take you home or whatever. Uh, I was like, no, don't bother her. She has a job. She's a career. She's a husband. Don't leave her alone. And he grabbed my phone and he called her and he started saying, oh, well, Isabel's acting crazy. You need to come and get her. And I grabbed the phone and I was like, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just get, please go about your business or whatever. And then in the background, He's just leveling insult after insult at me. And she's like, you know what? Tell me where you are. I'm coming to get you. you. You shouldn't be talked to that way. So I told her and she came. And as she came to get me, as she pulled up beside us, she said, you know, you're really a garbage person. And I bet your dad was a great guy. And he just treated you that way because you're so terrible. You know, you really deserved the abuse that you got from your dad. And I, I didn't go into the history of what I went through with my father, but it was sadistic. Like, cause this isn't the story, but it was sadistic. And when I heard him say that, literally that is the worst thing anyone has ever said to me ever. And I just, I just like, I was like, what the, I mean, like, and I grabbed, like, I remember, I don't know what, cause I didn't know what else to do. Like I grabbed the ashtray in his car and I just like slammed it on the ground and all the cigarettes that he smoked went everywhere. And he grabbed me and threw me out of the car, threw me onto the pavement and threw all of my stuff at me and screamed all these insults at me. And my friend was right there and horrified. And then he, he just peeled off. And I was on the ground. I scraped myself up really bad. And, well, he scraped me up really bad. And I just was shocked. I was in shock. Shock. He had just told me the most horrible thing and then physically threw me out of the car and I spent the rest of the night driving with my friend in her car 
and I didn't, I didn't, she was pregnant. She was on her third pregnancy and trying to get pregnant. She had been, she'd miscarried twice before. And midway through that conversation where I'm freaking out and she's upset, she finally tells me, you know, I'm pregnant. And, and she ended up losing that child too. And I couldn't, I still feel like, oh my God, it's my fault to lost that child. And I, like, I mean, it was just, it was just a horrible night, horrible, horrible night. And then for maybe like two or three weeks, I didn't hear from him. And he had all my stuff. And eventually he got in touch with me and he was like apologizing. He was like, I'm really sorry that I brought up all those issues for you from childhood because I know what you went through and you've been working on those things and you've gotten so well. And I'm sorry that I brought that stuff back up for you. And, you know, maybe, maybe could I like come over and give you your stuff and, and we can talk or whatever. And I was like, okay, that's fine. We'll just, we'll, we'll, you know, I need my stuff. So come over and give it to me or whatever. So he comes over and he's my stuff. He was really, really sorry and really sad. And just like, I'm, I really made a mistake with you. You're the best thing that I ever had. You're my Jewish princess and I'm really sorry and I need to get help and, please forgive me. I'm like, you know, you're really sexy. I'm like, can I, you know, you know, whatever. And, and I'm like, we, we should really talk about this. And then he kept like kind of talking about how sexy I was, how beautiful I was and seduced me and distracted me from it. There was, there was a lot of word salad in that conversation that I wasn't really like just a lot of circular language and, and like projection and just like stonewalling whenever I tried to get back on the issue and just like just, sympathy ploys and kind of like bringing up a lot of unrelated issues and starting a conversation over and just things. But like, I just kind of got confused and then he just kept seducing me. And finally we got back together and I never really did get to talk to him about it as usual. And then, so here we are in like May of 2019 and we're like, we're, we're working on things, right? Well, this community bike ride was coming up in May and we made this big plan to like get together for this community bike ride and all our friends that like hang out in that one little scene, we're going to be there. And he, you know, was like, you know, you know, we'll meet you there and we'll, we'll do this and whatever. And so I get there, he meets me where I'm parking my car and like, I go to hug him and maybe like three seconds and he's like, okay, that's enough. He pulls me back and I'm like, okay. And then we get to hanging out with everybody else and he's acting really aloof and he's drinking a lot. And this is where I started kind of noticing, like, his personality is really weird. Like, that mirroring that I'd seen, that now I know I'd seen early on, I'm seeing it now in his personality. Because these people, they don't have a core of identity, right? So they tend to modulate, like, their mask for whatever they're around. And he works at a factory with all of these, like, southern guys, these kind of redneck guys. So he wears a camel hat with a fish hook on it, but he's never fished a day in his life. He wears, uh, he was wearing a Lisa Frank t-shirt and cut off shorts like the hipsters wear. He had a, a pack of skull in his back pocket and he was also wearing a gold chain like, like rappers wear in Atlanta. And I'm like, there's a lot of amalgamation of personality here. Like, you know, was, I kind of just like, was like, you're so weird. But like, now I'm like, this is, that's what he does. Like he doesn't have his own identity. So he just like takes from what he sees other people what he thinks like other people find acceptable and kind of makes it part of himself, you know, but like he was getting really drunk and acting really aloof. And then during the bike ride, 
at one point, he was like, you know, you're like attached to my hips. Why don't you like go bike with other people? And I'm like, well, I thought we made plans to be here together. And remember, we made this plan. We were going to hang out together. He's like, the community bike ride. Hang out with other people. And I was like, fine. So, like, I just started hanging out with other people. And then the whole time, he would just sit alone in the grass and not talk to anybody. And I just did, I did not understand what was happening. And early on in that bike ride, my friend that had organized it said, you know, hey, you know, make sure she gets back to her car because I have all these food allergies and I can't eat the bread that they have at the end of the bike ride. So make sure she gets back to her car so that she can get her food, you know, whatever. I dutifully did not hang out with him for the entire bike ride, even though I thought that was our plan because he said I'm have to do this. So, like, just left him alone. And then at the end, I'm like, hey, will you let me get back to my car? And he's like, no, you can, get, you can get yourself back to the car. So I just I didn't go because it was really far. And it was at night and in the city. And so um, we ended up down at this place where, you know, everybody meets, but the karaoke place. And I, I got, like, pretty inebriated. And so did he. And at the end of the night, he's supposed to give me a ride home. And we get back to his car. And he, we were getting ready to get, go home. And he's like, okay. And you know, I started to get in the, in the front seat to, you know, get in. And he's like, no, you sit in the back seat. And I was like, what? And he's like, garbage people like you sit in the back seat. And I remember, like, we had, we had been driving down Broadway, which is like a main thoroughfare in, in, in our town. Where, and there's also in this one area where there's a lot of homeless people. And he'd point out homeless people and talk about how they were garbage people and they should be drug onto the street and shot. And that's now, that, like, that's his superiority, his grandiosity coming out. But on in that moment, it was just like, wow, he's basically saying I'm like them. And, like, I don't really have an idea in my head where I'm better or worse than anybody else. But it really felt horrible. And, like, I, I was just like, what am I supposed to do? So I get in the back seat and he just starts leveling insults at me after insult after insult. And I'm sitting cross-legged, and then all of a sudden he's like, get your dirty, ugly, gross seat off my car seat. And I had this Petra pack of wine with me, and the others are, like, cardboard. And it had been a hot day, and I just kind of, like, tucked it to the bottom of the, the car. Like, not, like, threw, not throwing it with force, but just kind of like, what are you doing? Like, I just kind of dropped it. Like, why would you say that to me? And it and exploded. And I did not mean to do that. It just happened because it was a piece of cardboard and it's hot. So it eroded over the day and like literally dropped it basically. And it happened and he freaked out. I mean, just started like amping up the verbal abuse, got out of the car, goes around to the back seat where he put me in the car and dragged me out of the car, throws me onto the pavement, throws all my stuff on me and just kicks me and just starts saying all this terrible stuff to me. And then he calls his mommy. <laughs> He's, like, telling his mom, like, oh, you need to get down here because it's so fucking crazy. And, like, I, I was just, like, oh, God, I just want to go home. I don't understand why it was happening to me. I don't understand anything that happened today, you know, and I'm, I'm really upset at this point. His mom gets down there, and she asked me to get in her car. And he goes, no, 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 she'll ride with me. She'll ride with me. It's okay. And now I know, like, he didn't want me to get in the car because he didn't want me to tell her what he had done. So I go to get in the back seat because I don't want any more abuse. He goes, what are you doing getting in the back seat? I get in the front. And I'm like, he told me to sit in the back. And his mom's with an earshot. You know, he's like, oh, I never said that. And I was like, all right, whatever. Just gaslight, you know. So I get in the front seat all the way home. We're following her back. All the way back, he's just insult after insult. I put a mint in my mouth. Oh, you're, 
get your 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 mouth smells like nasty liniment. Oh, you're you have ugly teeth. Oh, you have ugly hair. Oh, you're fat. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're artistic. No one's ever gonna like you. No one's ever gonna love you. All, all insult after insult. And I'm crying. He's like, I don't care about your. You're not. You're fake crying. You're not even really crying. Like, we get back to my subdivision. His bob beers off, and we get back to my house. And as he parts, I'm like, please talk to me. Like, please explain why this is happening. Like, I don't understand why this is happening. Can we just talk like rational people? And I'm holding onto the car door, begging him to stay. And he gets out of the car, grabs me, and with all of his strength, throws me across the road, like, ends up falling in the process. And I just scraped up my legs really bad and, like, just got back in the car and drove off. And I'm left there on the pavement crying. The next day, I had bruises all over my legs. All, I had a bruise on my stomach. I had finger marks on my arms. And I had this giant, deep purple bruise from my knee to my ankle on my left my left calf. Like, all the way from my knee to my ankle, deep purple. Like, about four inches wide, like a foot long. And, it, I mean, just deep purple and it was horrible and my mom saw it my friends saw the bruises because it was summer and you know it's late may at this point my mom was like okay i think that you're dating a narcissist i think that you're dating somebody that's worse than your father you you need to get out of this relationship and i i met with my friend that i'd originally met him through he invited another friend of mine to talk with us and he said that he had been friends with this guy um and i didn't know that but he's like yeah i used to i used to be friends with this guy and he turned out to be really psycho and i cut him out of my life he's like you need to get a restraining order on this guy now you need to get out now and i mean it was just it was horrible it was just horrible and then for like maybe a month or two we didn't talk i mean just i just kind of like just but I was I was completely horrified by the whole experience. Didn't understand what happened. I remember I did talk with his mom because I think that I'd left something in the car or some, something, whatever. And she was like, you know, you, you skinned my son's knee. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. Do you want to see the bruises that he left on me? Because my mom made me take pictures of them. <laughs> like, it just, it, she's just, she's a, she was right. She's a real piece of work. But we didn't talk for a really long time. I remember when he was leaving, though, he put his finger out of the car window and just pointed at me with his, finger, his arm outstretched and said, you lose. It was just that, that image I will, will never leave my mind. Okay, so for the rest of the summer and everything after, things really started changing after that. This was sort of like the beginning of the end. I saw less and less of him after that, and mostly he would only come back use me for sex but kind of keeping this hope that like things would change and we would get back together and a lot of times he would blame shift on me and trying to make it seem like it was my fault and that I had to change things about me if I was going to get him back and just there was this constant moving of goalposts anything that I did to accommodate him it just wasn't good enough and I would really I started changing myself to be what I thought he needed. And I was really starting to lose myself at this point because I 
you know, like, like you said, I was hooked and I really kept waiting for him to go back to being that person. And so every time he would move those goalposts, I would kind of comply, like just, oh, okay, we well, need me to do this. I'll do this. But it was never good enough. And even at one point, he told me that he didn't want to touch me ever again unless I got more experience from men because I'm not very experienced. And for several months, he would just hang up on me or not talk to me, but only say that and just kept saying, like, I won't touch you again. I won't, I won't touch you again unless you get more experience from men. And then finally, I ended up doing what he said and having sex with somebody that I barely even knew. And just to, like, get him to talk to me again. Because at that point, I would do anything just to make the abuse stop, just to make it stop, just to make everything go back to being the way that it was. And I felt raped after I did that. And the guy was actually really above board. I mean, everything that he said, all of his actions, they were all congruent. Everything, we both knew it was casual. But I was being honest with him. I didn't tell him how I was being manipulated into that. I ended up having to tell him later, and we're still friends now. But it just, it just broke me because I'm not that kind of person. But I did it for him. And then whenever he would come back, he, the the sex that he had with me was a lot more forceful. He was pushing more and more boundaries. He would start saying that I was going to be his sub. He would start trying to get me to do very humiliating things. Like one time, he said he wanted me to crawl naked through the backyard to him. He wanted to hit me all the time during sex. He wanted to choke me. I told him no to all of those things, but even once he did choke me during sex, and I saw this look in his eye that was so terrifying, and I couldn't get him to stop, and it was really scary. And things just get started getting kinkier and kinkier for him. Um, it just, and then, you know, he would always have this promise that things were going to be okay. And, and that would, he would say that things were okay and that we were back together and that I'd see him somewhere and he would act like he didn't know me. He went from calling me his Jewish princess to saying he hates Jews. Like he would just start saying like women should be seen and not heard and like all this terrible stuff. And then anytime I tried to like get him to talk to me, to give me some kind of understanding of what was happening and why this was happening, he would be violent. I was like, I was almost like, I don't deserve to be disrespected this way. I deserve to be able to have this conversation. So I'm going to make this happen. And that he did not like not being able to have that control and me trying to force that to happen. So he would amp up his abuse. It got to the point where he actually put a loaded gun to my head at one point. He when I went over to talk to him another day, he dared and encouraged me to commit suicide in his backyard. And yeah, I had a, a, box, a box of wine and a bottle of Xanax. And he was like, keep taking the Xanax, keep taking it. Keep, you deserve to die. You should die. And I did it. And I ended up blacked out in his backyard. I would have been dead if it weren't for my friends that came and got me and kept me up all night and forced me to throw up. And it was just, it was horrible. There was another time where he asked me to come and pick him up from his parents' house, and he was really, really drunk. And we got back to my house, and he told me that I had to do everything he said, and he forced himself on me and even said this, like, very cliche line, which now makes me cringe, like, you know you want it. And eventually I just gave up and let him have it. Um, He stole, like, a bunch of my stuff and mainly like my very expensive underwear which is so creepy I like I never could get it back at one point I like I I was like look I really need to have this conversation I really need to this is this is now March of of 20 2020 I like you know like I said 
it was very, you know, pretty much the beginning of the end and we didn't really see each other except for him doing all of these, moving a full post and trying to use me for sex, I guess. And with all this promise that we think we're going to work out, but, but every time he would do something horrible to me, I was like, we need to talk. We need to talk. And one time he said, okay, I'll meet you and talk. I'll meet you and talk. And then when I got there, he was like, I'm going to need $300 for this conversation. <laughs> and I thought that it was like, just, you know, a joke or something. And so I, I'd actually, you know, I had a couple hundred dollar bills in my, in my wallet and I pulled it out. I was like, you really want this? And he grabbed it and burned it right in front of my face. And it just, it was just like, there were like maybe two $20 bills or three $20 bills left. And he was like, come on, if you're going to have this conversation, let's go. And he was so cold and so mean. And he walked me through downtown and the rest of the money he gave to bums whom he'd, you know, said earlier that were garbage. And he said, yeah, they deserve it more than you do because you're such a terrible person. And I was wearing a sweater that he gave me. And he said, I want that sweater back. Give it to me now. And I was like, I'm not wearing anything underneath it. I can't, I, you know, like, I had a raincoat on over it and that was it. And he was like, take that off and you can wear the raincoat and nothing underneath. And I was like, no. And he, and he was like, well, fine, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a store and I'm going to buy the most retarded ugly shirt I can find because you're retarded and you deserve to look humiliated. You deserve to wear an ugly shirt. And I started crying in the store when he got me in there and picking out stuff. And he finally like gave up. And then we went and to the place where he said he was going to have a conversation and I, you know, got both of us brunch and we're trying to talk. And he just completely did that word salad thing with me again and then just left me there and then called me later on. And said, yo, I'm at this place. Let's just come here instead. And so I met him there, and he was really drunk when I finally met him there. And he started saying, like, hey, I, you know, but actually, I said to him, you know, I really think this is, this is really the beginning of the end because this is when I finally kind of made the realization, like, okay, this person is a narcissist. And... I told him, I was like, I think you're heading down the same road that my dad went down. And now he's laying in a hospice bed by himself and nobody wants to be around him. And I don't want that to happen to you. I want you to get well. And he, he was like, I'm going to talk to your dad. I want to learn how to be better at this. I'm going to learn from him. And he actually called my dad at the hospice. He had the number in my phone and got him on the phone. And my dad was like so out of it he thought he was talking to me and he kept saying that I love you <laughs> and like it, it was just like a weird moment just I can't believe he called my father because I hadn't even talked to him here um and later that night like he just said he was really sorry and he wanted things to work out and I went back home with him and then his his mom ended up coming over at three in the morning and, like, knocking on the door erratically and texting him. And he answered the phone and was like, oh, yeah, it's both here. She's, you know, she's crazy, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it, it was just insane at this point. And then, you know, I, m- I remember him telling me that he only ever hate fucked me, which is just, like, a terrible phrase I would never use. And I didn't even know what it meant at the time. I had to go look it up. And, like, any, like, there was another time I went over and, like tried to talk to him and he grabbed my phone from me and smashed it. Um, he, he picked up a bat 
act threatened me with it. And like another time I came over to talk to him, he slammed me into the door and put his hand in my mouth and grabbed me by the jaw and slammed my head into the door over and over. And when I curled up into a ball, he dragged me across the kitchen floor by my hair. Is any time I tried to like force that conversation, he amped up that abuse. And I was just thinking, I deserve this conversation. I deserve to not be treated this way. And I'm going to, I'm going to get through to him. And just, it was just awful. And then finally in like March of 2020, he came back to me and he was like, I have been an awful person. I, I want to change and I should protect you from my alcoholism. And I really am sorry. And things are going to be different from now on. And like, give me another chance. And like I said, like from, from that summer up until March of 2020, it was mainly just him hoovering me really quickly, then devaluing me and discarding me immediately. And just, that just happened several times. So it just, it was really just the beginning, mostly just discard and mostly not talking to me and mostly using me for sex, but with this hope that things were going to get better. So when he came back to me and said that, he was like, everything's going to be different this time and we're going to talk about it and everything is going to be good. And we had this talk where we, where he kind of convinced me that, and he did use a lot of like projection and just kind of blame shifting and gaslighting and just, you know, well, you know, you do this and that's why I'm like this. And so you need to do this and da, da, da. And like, we're going to, you know, it's going to work out and we're going to blah, blah, blah. And I tried to accommodate him so much. I tried to be perfect. I was like, well, look, he needs a lot of space. So I'll give him space. Like he, cause, cause at that point I'm just thinking, well, he discards me so much, you know, I'll just, you know, and I didn't think he was a full blown narcissist. I just thought he's heading down that path. So, I just thought, well, you know, if if he needs that space, because that's what I'm seeing here, I'll just give him that space. I'll be perfect. He won't be able to do anything more to me because I'll just give him space when he needs it. And we can see each other like once a month. That's fine. You know, and I'm just, at that point, I've just lost all my boundaries and lost everything. And so he comes over and he like, he's sitting down at my computer and this is after we'd had that talk and everything was like maybe a week later and he sits down at my computer and he starts looking up trap porn on the computer and this is what he calls it and he's trying to make me watch it and I'm just like no I thought we were going to spend time together and he just kept laughing at that wouldn't look at me and then finally he was like let's go to the other room and do it or whatever and just it was just so cold and so like, I felt like I was being hate fucked. It was awful. And then he went home, and then, like, maybe a week later, because I, I didn't dare reach out to him at this point. I was too scared to. I was too scared to do anything. I mean, whenever I would meet him out somewhere, when he would tell me he would want to meet, I was almost like a puppet at this point, and I would, I would meet up with him, and my hands would be shaking, and I would, he would notice, and I would make excuses, like, oh, I just haven't eaten today or something like that. I was so scared, but I was, I was so trauma bonded at this point that it just, and just wanted to do anything to make you stop, wanted to do anything to make it work. Cause he kept saying like so many times, I'm, you know, I really want to make this work. I'm really sorry. I really want things to be different. I'm really going to protect you. I'm really going to do this. So like he, he contacted me like maybe a week later and wanted to come over. And that time he was really, really nice. And we had a nice time together. And then afterwards, 
this is kind of getting into like when the pandemic started and he started making excuses. He didn't want to see me because of the pandemic. And so I let him go. I was just fine. A week went by. I didn't hear from him. And then he contacted me that weekend and he was like, just texting me like a normal conversation. I thought we were having a normal conversation. And then all of a sudden he just started just spewing insults at me through text. And I was like, where is this coming from? And then he just went silent. And the next day I texted him and said, look, if, if, if you're going to do this, like, I'm not going to, you cannot do this again. You can't just hurt me this way. I'm not going to take this anymore. And he said, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. And then the next, another week went by and he didn't talk to me. And then that weekend he texted me and wanted to start a conversation and everything seemed normal. And he was drinking and really, you could tell by his text, like he was just really drinking a lot. And then he started doing the same thing, just verbally insulting me. And it, like I said it again, like, I told you not to do this. Like, I'm coming over to talk to you. And it was really, really late at night. And I went over there, and he wouldn't answer the door. And uh, the next day, he apologized again. And then another week went by, and I didn't hear from him. And I'm still try- I'm trying so hard to give him what he, what he wants and just give him his space. And he texted me that weekend and did the same thing and started saying, like, you're really obsessed with your dad. You should just go ahead and fuck him and get it over with. And that was horrible. And I was like, why do you say these things to me? Like, I don't understand. Like, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've given you as much space as you want. Now it's been three weeks. And every week that goes by, you reach out to me and you start insulting me. Like, I can't, I'm not perfect. I can't handle this forever. Like, when are you just going to be nice? When, when can you just see me? Can we just talk? Like, this is just going on and on and on. Like, please stop doing this to me. And he's like, because you asked, I'm not going to have sex with you ever again. And then he didn't talk to me for two or three days. And I asked him to talk to me. He's like, because you asked to talk, I'm not going to talk to you on the phone ever again. And then another few days went by and, and I asked him to talk again. And he said, because you asked, I'm never going to talk to you ever again. Somebody else can deal with your mental illness. And then I just didn't hear from him ever again. That was the final discard, if you will. And I was so devastated that for, like, two months, I, I tried, you know, I tried to reach out to him. I tried to talk to him. I tried to get him to give me closure. I tried to, anything to, like, get him to, like, talk to me and let me have a voice about what happened and understand everything that happened in this relationship. And... Finally, I got served with an order of protection, and it was the most humiliating, devastating experience of my life. I went to court. I thought, well, I have this friend that's a lawyer. All these, he had, you know, he had broken my finger. He had raped me. He had left bruises on me. He destroyed my phone. At one point, he had kicked, kicked my. Uh, Headlight out of my car, broke my bumper in my car, broke my finger, done all this stuff to me. I could have gotten a restraining order him so many times, but I never did because he would always beg me not to call the police. So I, you know, I didn't. And he would always apologize. He put a loaded gun to my head, you know, all this stuff. And so even at one point, I told him, you know, don't, please stop doing this to me. And he told me to get on my knees and beg him to stop hurting me. And I did because I was so broken. He had done so much stuff to me, and then he serves me. And I just, I thought, oh, my God, I used to be this classy, well-put-together person, and now I'm this, and now I'm being served with this. And I, I know I'm the victim here. What, you know, how, I can't believe I'm in this situation. 
So I, I had this friend that, or was really more of an acquaintance that had just started out as a lawyer and he agreed to represent me for free and he knew the situation. So he really wasn't, he really was not competent and it, like, he didn't tell me to timestamp my photos. I went to court. Um, I was so, so messed up from all of the abuse, all of the verbal, all of the physical, all of the sexual, all of the financial, all of the psychological abuse, all the devaluation, everything that I could barely function. And I was so humiliated to even be there. And he comes in calm, cold, and presents the story. Just We dated for two years. And when he broke up with me, I wouldn't let go and that he doesn't have to give me closure and that I'm, that I'm asking for closure and won't leave him alone and that he doesn't have to give me closure if he doesn't want to. And even though at one point I'd seen him and he said that I was a game to him and that he never cared about me and that he destroyed me for his own amusement and I'd like, you know, followed him to try to talk to him about it. And he bent all my fingers back and broke my finger. He said, I broke my own finger. He said that I'm an alcoholic. He said that I tried to break into his house and he showed a picture of me knocking on his door and him opening it, like, and said that that was me trying to break in and that I was stalking him, which if you, if you talk to a victim of narcissistic abuse and they're trauma bonded, they're, you know, they're not a sucker. They have no malicious intent. They just they just want to talk. They just want closure. It's not stalking. It's not healthy behavior. I'm not trying to say what I was doing was healthy, but I was desperate to have a voice. He never let me. He always used word salads to get out of those conversations or just ignored me completely. And, you know, having heard that I was a game to him, that he, that he destroyed me for his own pleasure, and not getting to know what the hell happened to me. You know, you, you're just dying to just rationalize and understand or talk and figure it out. And to be called a stalker because of that is just, I had never had a relationship like this in my entire life. I, nothing like this ever happened. I'm not a stalker. It, it was awful to be called that, but I felt the shame. And he, I had a friend that was in court with me. I thought it was a friend. And mind you, I'm hanging out in this group where all these artists and all these musicians gather. And I had, you know, rose tinted glasses on when I started hanging out. I hadn't been social in a while. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to hang out with all of these artists and it's going to be great. I had no idea what an into- a toxic environment I had been in. All these people are basically alcoholics and they're unhealthy people. There's a few really good people in that group. But I was hanging out with just bad people and <clears throat> I had this one friend that I thought was really on my side and she came with me to court that day and she heard him say all these lies. And then at the same time, I'm not able to show my photos because when I started to, he said, oh, they're not time stamped. How is she able to show these photos? How do we know when they occurred? And I'm thinking, why didn't my lawyer tell me to time stamp these? And so that didn't get to be shown. And then all of the, the, the text, the harassment that he sent me when I started to show those, he said, oh, well, verbal abuse is at grounds for a restraining order. And I even said to the lawyer, like, don't say it's verbal abuse, say it's harassment. And he wouldn't say anything. And he didn't. And I warned the guy, like, this guy is cunning. He is a con artist. He, is, he has 
laughed about how he's conned people in the past. He lies about all this stuff. He's gaslit me. He's definitely a narcissist. Like, understand that he is going to be cunning. And, and I think maybe the reason why he moved from North Carolina to Atlanta to here is that he had intimated that he had had to leave for some reason or another. He's probably done this to other girls. He's going to do this again. This isn't an anomaly. Beware. And the guy just didn't do anything. He seemed nervous. And so I had no evidence except, you know, I had, you know, my my friend that originally I met him through come and say that it was an abusive relationship, but she didn't have the text from when the, because she said, oh, yeah, I saw the bruises, but she didn't have the text for when they happened and everything. And then at the end, the judge was like, well, clearly this was an abusive relationship, but I don't have any evidence from you, so I'm going to have to award him, and I can't award you the restraining order. So now basically the legal system is telling me that I'm the one to blame and that I'm the one that is, is the bad person here. And I started internalizing that. And the girl that was with me at court ended up believing his lies and wouldn't let me explain anything because after that I was so broken, I was suicidal and she left me. And then she went and told everybody in that group of people where everybody hung out that, I'm a stalker that tried to break in someone's house. That she said that I tried to run him over in my car when he actually tried to run me over. She said that I broke my own finger when he tried to break my finger. I mean, when he did break my finger. I mean, and and then told everybody that I have a restraining order on me. And so now I'm not only dealing with the fact that I've been through this horrible abuse, but everybody in that group in that hipster scene just completely stopped talking to me and believed she believed the lies that he said and they believed the lies that she said so I lost everything like everything in me collapsed and I I I just felt like the only thing that I can do is walk away from all of this yet I'm still trauma bonded to this person and about eight months went by in this was training order and I was I was out one night and going to a different place where you know those people don't really hang out and I ran into my ex and he was really really drunk and of course and when I saw him I almost fainted I I was so I mean I was just I'm at this point just very defeated very helpless I feel like nobody believes me I don't have a voice like Nobody understands what happened to me. People don't even know about narcissistic abuse. People believe his lies. He's, his smear campaign is working. Like, it's, <clears throat> I'm the one, like, because they really do try to make their victims look like they're the ones that are crazy. And because they're so traumatized by all the abuse and emotional, it's easy to do, you know? So, you know, people just think I'm crazy and they don't really know him, so they don't really care. And I ran into him. And I, I thought I was going to faint when I saw him. I got myself together, and I asked him, are you going to call the cops on me? And he goes, no, sit. I want to talk to you. And because I'm trauma-bonded, because I'm desperate for closure, because I'm just so broken by everything, I sat down. And he started saying, I'm really sorry. I want you to have everything you ever wanted. I want you to have closure. I know you need this conversation. Let's have this conversation. Of course, that's everything I ever wanted this whole time that we dated that he never let me have. And 
So I'm like, yeah, okay, let's talk. And then he started saying, like, you you know, I won. He leaned his head back and was laughing maniacally and was like, yeah, I won, and just laughing about it. You lose, I won. Then he called me a stupid Jew. And he said my lawyer was incompetent, which I actually, you know, agree with him on. And then um, he started begging me for sex. And I told him, no, it, you know, it, you're just going to be putting all your hate on me. I, I don't want to have sex like that. And he laughed and he said, yeah, you're right. And then he choked me and shoved me. And it just, I mean, it, when I told him no, we're, we're trying, you know, we had left the bar to like go have this conversation. And so, you know, when he said that, he, he was begging me for sex over and over and I kept telling him no. He kept, he started like molesting me, like putting his hand up my shirt, trying to put his hand down my pants. At this point, we're in my car and stuff. And, and, uh, and I, you know, like I, the first time he had begged me for sex, I told him no and he choked me and shoved me. He got kicked out of the bar. And we went to my car and that, you know, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll just talk. It's fine. It's fine. Just drive to your house and we'll talk. And then he started begging me for sex again. And that's when he started molesting me and verbally abusing me. And um, then he busted out my windshield with his foot for no reason. Like, just, just like, you, you know, we're, I'm driving down the highway. And he's like kept begging me for sex, and I kept telling him, "No, get stop putting your hands on me. I want to talk." He said, "You want to talk? So let's talk." And he busted out my windshield, and I asked him why he did that, and he's like, "Because I can." And this is—I mean, this is the thing. He has a restraining order on me, but because I said no when he begged me for sex, he physically abused me, verbally abused me, molested me, and damaged my property. He didn't. I don't. I guess ever wanted to have that conversation I guess it was just like a ruse but that's that's where I'm at now and when I told him that he destroyed my life he said no me importa which means I don't care so at this point by August I'll be done with this restraining order and now I'm trying to get my life back together and it, I've lost everything everything I thought I wanted trying to be social trying to go out and connect with people. I've lost all those people. I've lost my self-respect. I don't have, I, I'm just totally regressed back into CPSC and just trying to like learn from this experience. So where do you begin? Like, how did you begin? Like, you know, when that day ended the last time you saw him, um, did you spiral out of control downward in, in from that day? Did you have to find yourself at a bottom to kind of pick yourself up? And, like, where did you go from there? I did spiral. I mean, I actually disassociated. I remember hyperventilating. I'd been through so much bullying and so much of what when I ran into him, that was absolutely re-traumatizing. But I was also being bullied at the same time by that same group of friends. So... It just became this, finally, like, I just, it, it just, like, was more than I could take. And I, I remember, I remember actually hyperventilating one night and, and was, I'm at the point now where I'm like, there's a point in our town where, um, I live, I live way out in the suburbs 
on the other side of town. And if you go east, you hit the Arts District, and then you hit downtown. I literally will not go past the, the Arts District anymore. I won't go downtown because I don't want to see – I don't want those people to hurt me anymore. And I don't want to see him. So I've, I've just stopped going down. And I've found places where I can go. And I have certain friends that they know they know the truth, friends that have known me for years, that knew who I was before this, that witnessed the abuse, friends of mine that they, I mean, those friends, the friends that I've known for a long time and certain friends that I did meet during this time are still my friends. Like certain ones of them have agreed to meet me. Like one friend is like, you know, every Monday we'll hang out. Another friend is like every Thursday we'll hang out. I have those things to look forward to. Um and other in in other other my friends just hanging out whenever just knowing that I have those things to look forward to kind of helps me just stay away, and um, the rest of my time what I'm trying to do is just write everything down like I <clears throat> like this is this is a great cathartic experience for me for one thing just to be able to tell my story it's be able to put my narrative together I think that the most important thing for for survivors of this type of abuse and I really want to emphasize survivors because I don't want to I don't want to call myself a victim and I don't want to call them a victim because I don't want them to internalize like I'm a victim because so many people like they end up ghosts of themselves and if there's anybody listening to this I really really want you to know please 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 don't die don't give up because it's it's not your fault. Just keep fighting. It really breaks my heart that this has become such a problem in our society. But um, just I mean, I think everybody's healing process is different. For me, I think, and I think for for all of us that are suffering from this kind of abuse. The most important thing in the beginning is just just get the narrative down, get your reality down, because they they really do try. They move those goalposts. They constantly manipulate you. They constantly gaslight you. They warp your reality. They take your friends away. They they fuck up your finances. They they take your boundaries away. They lie to you. You've got to get your narrative straight. Get your reality straight. Stop blaming yourself. Stop taking on and don't internalize all of that blame and shame. They are the ones that are in hell, and they want to drag you down to where they are. They are the ones that feel a sense of inadequacy and insecurity, and it's a shame point for them. And all they have is rage and pain, and they have to pull you down. They have to destroy you to feel good. Don't let them do it. The best thing that you can do is live your life well and and know it takes time. But get your narrative straight, get your reality straight, get it out of your system and learn to love yourself. And then whatever after that, I think it's everybody else, everybody has their own path. For me, I'm an artist, so art therapy is what's most important for me. Some people want to do EMDR or therapy, and that's fine if you have those resources. I don't. But I'm working on a, a zine right now, like a, a small like pamphlet where I can just put 
as much information as I can about narcissistic abuse together and get it out to people for free, just to, just to have the information out there. And that's helpful for me just because I fear another woman going through this. I don't want to know of another woman going through this because this isn't an anomaly. This isn't just a bad breakup. This isn't just, we're just not good together. He's going to do this to another woman. And I, I'm terrified of that and I can't do anything about it. But if people are informed, then I feel like I'm doing something. So I'm trying to write something where I'm putting like sort of an informational guide to narcissistic abuse and its effects on, on victims and how to keep yourself safe. And again, I think self-love is really important. Learning how to, once you get past the point where you're, you've got your narrative straight and you, you know what happened to you and you're not internalizing that, you understand what, what really happened in that situation getting to a point where you can engage in self-love and not self-defeating behaviors. And that also means being, being aware of those issues that you have that made you vulnerable, that made you susceptible to this type of manipulation so that it never can happen again to you. I think it's just like this, this can make you a stronger person in the end, but you just, you have to keep, you have to fight. And I know that, I'm not the only one that's gone through this and that there are other people out there suffering. I just still keep fighting, just keep fighting to get, I know what that pain is like. I know how overwhelming it is. Just keep fighting. Just love yourself and understand that the person that you were with is a very sick person. That's also in hell and they wanted to bring you to hell with them and just let it go and know that there's someone so much better for you out there that's going to love you for who you are. Just love yourself, and that'll happen. Well, usually at this point, I say, do you have any final words of wisdom or uh, advice to give? And you beat me to it, and I just want to say thank (laughs) you for doing that. You are amazing. You did an amazing job today, and, you know, you know, we've had a long conversation, longer than people <laughs> think. And, you know, it's been a really interesting collaborative experience. Um, and I'm really proud of you for what you uh, did today. You did fantastic. And you're going to help a lot of people. And you yourself, hopefully you listen to the own words that you said in this episode because you have nothing to be ashamed about at all. And, you know, the power is back with you and um, you're wonderful and you did superb. And I can go on with a million synonyms, but I'm going to stop right there and just say thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here uh, with me today and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It means the world to me from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And from me and Isabel... Thank you to everyone who is listening, and I hope you have a good night.